Hello and welcome to episode one, the the premiere, first epic issue. <laughs> it's sort of a Captain on the Pits, the first epic movie situation um, of <laughs> the comics podcast that you like a lot. That's a good logline, right? <laughs> it rolls off the tongue, certainly. Uh, speaking of rolling off the tongue, I'm going to get this episode rolling uh, by introducing my co-host. He is, I like to call him the comics czar. He's sort of, uh, you're sort of the Schwab of comics. <laughs> do, you, do you know about Stump the Schwab? No. Oh, it's, is this like, it's like a sports trivia yeah, thing? Yeah, it's like an ESPN sports, sports trivia, trivia thing, right. where I believe it aired on ESPN 2. It was surprisingly difficult to find episodes. Anyways, <laughs> uh, for me on YouTube, like in like the last several months. Uh-huh. Anyways, this is not that, but he is arguably the Schwab of comics. He is my brother. It's David. Hello, hello, David. hello, Christopher. How are you? <laughs> Why well, I, I heard your voice wanting to creep into Fraser there. <laughs> I do have a famous uh, Frasier that perhaps one day will uh, grace these airwaves. Wow, but, uh, you're saving it, huh? <laughs> I mean, good things are worth waiting for. <laughs> I'll have to save my John Mahoney as well, though. <laughs> um, but yes, this is Got the Runs. It's a comics podcast about comics creators. How's that? That's We'll, we'll figure something out. Uh, we'll get there. I'll just keep talking and eventually something will happen. Um so to, this is the first official episode. You might have already heard our episode zero, Secret Origins. If not, you can go back and listen to that or not. It's not really that important. But the upshot of that episode is that today we will be discussing the first entry in the works of Scott McCloud, which entails the comic series Zot. Exclamation or, point. Zot, <laughs> as it's sometimes referred. Uh, written and artisted. That's, <laughs> we can tell we know a lot about art. Uh, by the very same Scott McCloud. Um, well, how, how do we want to approach this? Do you want, do you want me to give you my Eclipse Comics <laughs> spiel? Oh, well, yeah, I think... I think let's let's talk through a little bit of the background and then we can we can jump into the story. I think that's yeah. a good plan. Um, so Scott McCloud himself, he this is you know his first like real comic, right? Yeah, it's his first. Uh, I think it's his first published like anything anywhere. He was twenty three when he started making it, which Oof. is insane. Yeah, <laughs> makes you feel <laughs> bad about yourself. <laughs> yeah. It also now makes sense that you sort of start, you know, spoilers for later in the episode, but you sort of start to see as the thing goes on where he's like, I can't do this. <laughs> um, <laughs> makes more sense that he's in his early 20s. Yeah. But yes, he so he started making comics when he was a teenager. He worked with Kurt Busiek or Busiek as Busiek, he's referred yes. to in the liner notes of these comics, uh, who was a schoolmate of his, obviously. Known for doing Marvel's Superman like the run on the Secret Avengers. Identity, yeah, the Avengers. Um, yes, much and and who Scott McCloud credits for getting him into comics in the first place. Yes, and uh, is and is also a consultant listed yeah, a script script weirdly. consultant uh, throughout the entire ten issue run that we ha- are covering today. 
I meant to go and look at my uh, the black and white issues to see if he was still being credited there. But uh, yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I'm very. I'm very curious. I couldn't really find out anything about what that means, other than like I'm sure Scott McCloud was like talking to him about it the whole time. Yeah, um, I think I think probably he wanted to get his name out there. Out as, there. It would be my guess. Well, because he's 23 as well, um, and also uh, like an aspiring. I guess he's he is a comics professional at this point, I think. Let's see what Wikipedia says. Yes, his first professional work was a backup story in an issue of Green Lantern in March of 1983. And yes, I believe Zod starts come, comes out in 1984. That's correct. And also, I do know that Scott McCloud was working at, at DC when this first came out. He was As a was production Kirby's artist. Like, yes. Um, another thing I learned about Scott McCloud is that he... I think along with Kurt Busiek and a couple of other people, he created the first ever licensed Marvel DC crossover comic. <laughs> wait, really? <laughs> oh, wait, it's, are you talking? Uh, they is, Was that licensed? I remember I read an interview with him. Oh, what's it called? The Battle of Lexington? Is that what you're talking no, about? No, it's, it's okay. called like, it's called, I've, I didn't write down what it's called. It's called something like Biff Bang Boom Pop. Uh, <laughs> and so what, what it was part of is, it was the Boston Pops Orchestra oh, perfor- had a performance of comics-themed music, and alongside this performance, there was a one-shot, which was apparently the first ever licensed Marvel DC crossover comic. <laughs> uh, that is insane. <laughs> Truly. I. That's why I wrote it down. Um, yes, and so he... I guess creates this in his early 20s he obviously has a very flushed out idea for it which we'll get into um, and it is published by Eclipse Comics yes a stalwart <laughs> for <laughs> well, 10, 10 good yeah. years they had <laughs> yeah because they had more than 10 years but uh... 10 they within 10 years of Zot coming out they are dead yeah I think they had like 15 total years or like maybe 16 uh, the first thing I want to talk about with Eclipse Comics, I'm going to quote directly from Wikipedia here. During the 1980s, Eclipse brought in a new line of non-fiction, non-sports trading cards edited by... How, how do you how would you pronounce that? It's Kat Irwanwode. Oh, Kat Ironwood. Oh, Ironwood. Uh, who is also, you know, she's the editor of Zot and... She handles the letters page at points. Yeah, she's a, she's a, a very like she's kind of a pillar of uh, of the comics industry. She's like she's been around forever. Uh, you may recall we lived together when I was doing doing um, my big read through of Shang Chi, Master of Kung Fu, of <laughs> in the omnibuses, uh, and she's like a letter hack uh, in the in the letters pages of Shang Chi for like long stretches constantly a real like, bill woo she she <laughs> is one of the people who uh, frequently writes in to respond to bill woo uh true <laughs> true visionary of the the shang chi letters page um she she and bill woo butt heads in the letters page of shang chi <laughs> like semi semi frequently um that tracks so she's she's been like around comics for a long time and she's kind of like one of the big personalities of sort of like the more indie creator um owned um like creator focused sort of corners of the comics world yeah she seems cool based on based on the letters pages i read um anyway so yes this line of non-fiction non-sports trading cards 
controversial political subjects such as the Iran-Contra scandal, the savings and loan crisis, the AIDS epidemic, and the Kennedy assassination, (laughs) as well as true crime accounts of serial killers, mass murderers, the mafia, and organized crime were covered in these card sets. That tracks is all (laughs) I have to say about that. (laughs) That tracks for you? That tracks with what I know of Cat Ironwood, yes. Interesting. That... That truly baffled me. <laughs> like I said, she's uh, she's an interesting uh, character and and definitely like one of the yeah one of the big personalities in comics, especially like around this time. Yeah. So the the big thing I think for Eclipse, they had uh, Eclipse Magazine, which was sort of an anthology series that had a number of original characters. That the big thing with Eclipse is that they are sort of pioneers of a sort of direct market direct to comic book store graphic novels Mm -hmm. and then also big you know champions for rights for creators which obviously is still a thing and was Mm -hmm. i assume much less of a thing at that time yeah and it's uh it's i think it's interesting that they are where like the place that zot gets picked up because that seems like it really informs like scott mcleod We'll, I'm sure we'll talk about more, especially when we get to like reinventing comics and making comics. But he has been like a long time creators' rights activist. He published like a creators bill of rights with uh, with like a few other yes, I did see that signatories. Um, and and like has as basically every after he wrote um, understanding comics there's like a long stretch where all he's doing is like experimenting with like other media. Yeah, creator rights things. It's obviously something that he's very passionate about. But yeah, Eclipse. When I when I think of Eclipse, I usually think of it as like the publisher where Miracle Man, Al- Alan yes, Moore's Miracle that was, Man. That was the thing I was saw. Serialized there were, there were in America. Um, and and like lots of like they've got some big, big big in the comic. Like Dave Stevens, The Rocketeer, was an Eclipse comic, or or ran in Eclipse comics for a while, which is like a big deal um and some of craig like craig p russell did an adaptation of Ooh, the magic flute i want to say <laughs> that the mozart opera <laughs> yes uh Jeez. or sorry p p craig russell did i say craig p russell i don't know yeah well either way he's he's like a celebrated artist who uh the mass or the magic flute i think is one of one of his kind of signature works that was published uh at eclipse so there yeah they they in some ways, Zot seems almost like a bad fit in terms of like subject matter that it's, I mean, I don't know, maybe not. It's kind of like a superhero parody, but also kind of like a straight faced superhero. It's it's more parodying kind of the trends in superhero comics at the time than it is parodying the idea of superheroes. And in some ways, it's kind of like a, an early, it's like already responding to like miracle man and being like this is way too much for a superhero comic yeah Yeah, that's what uh wait is any of that background noise coming through i don't hear anything okay good um leave that (laughs) yeah let's take it wrong with your burp um yeah that yeah i I wouldn't even i well maybe you know we can get into this more when we actually get into the book itself but i don't even see this as a parody per se you know certain it's certainly i know i know it's meant to be a response to that kind of idea but 
well maybe it's we lighthearted. Can... i think there are moments of like outright parody like there's that scene where butch is trying to like coach zot to being like more serious and more credible right. as a threat yes. and is like try scowling there's like a whole a whole like beat of <laughs> moments there where it's like it's it's dumb superheroes should smile superheroes are supposed to be fun and inspirational and like yeah i think things like that are pretty clear parody but you're I, you're right it's not i wouldn't say parody is like the primary function or genre of uh, of what he's doing yeah um when so yes like you said it was pub- first published in 1984 um i was trying to well no I, well i intentionally didn't try to do too much research about you know the context of the comics industry and all that stuff mm-hmm. but when i when i think of that era in comics i think of crisis on infinite earths 1985 yeah. and then watchmen is 1986 yeah and then the other sort of more vague nebulous thing is just like more like a lot of like comics being about like drugs and like yeah like frank miller is writing daredevil at that time obviously miracle man has already like come out and finished its run i think alan moore at that time is writing swamp thing i want to say which is like uh, I think if I'm recalling correctly, I think Swamp Thing is the first DC comic to forego the Comics Code Authority stamp on the front um, while while Alan Moore is writing it. So that certainly gives you a sense of like, I mean, Swamp Thing, <laughs> Swamp Thing is not exactly like a superhero comic and never was exactly like a superhero comic. It's definitely more in the sort of like, like EC comics uh kind of like the heap and uh and man thing and like more more like a horror monster comic than than it ever was a superhero comic but yeah for for a dc comic um to to be running at that time without the comics code authority stamp on it is a big deal that i think speaks to like the darker direction that the publisher is willing to go maybe not necessarily with its like a-list titles but certainly with you know a mainline title that has <laughs> the dc logo on the front and you know this is this is around the same time that like superman is going to be featured on a cover of infinite an infinite uh, crisis on infinite earth's comic like holding supergirl's dead body in his arms and like weeping so yeah it's it's definitely like it started it started to like turn towards that darkness and when you consider that like watchmen and uh, the dark knight returns haven't even come out yet which certainly i think of the the books of this era are sort of most influential on the tone and direction that superheroes go after that um it i think yeah it speaks to we're kind of right in the midst of that sort of dark age right dark dark age in terms of is that is that a I know there are ages in comics. Is this the Dark uh, Age? No. Or is that more than 90s? This is, I think people would call this, some people might call this the Dark Age, but it's it's more kind of like... Bronze Age. I, I feel extended. like this is usually where people would start to say the modern age. And then, and then I think like we've reached the point, uh, for a long time, I think just like the modern age was everything from like 1985 to now but i think we've re- we've passed the point where there's some clear delineations again right. um that that you know looking back it's easier now to say like obviously comics now and comics in 1985 are very different from each other but uh, but yeah no that i think actually kurt busick in his uh series astro city which is 
I think kind of almost like not a sister series is probably the wrong thing to call it, but it's his sort of like he's playing with superhero pastiches to to generally comment on like the superhero genre. And he did a whole like big long arc of that called The Dark Age, which um, I haven't read. It's on my list, but I think is is kind of responsive to this sort of era of comics as well and talking about the changes from um kind of like those bronze age era comics or or especially the silver age into the the gradual sort of darkening of tone fruit of the same tree you might say yeah so i guess you know we've we've already sort of started to jump in here i'll i'll debut a new segment <laughs> <laughs> i my my idea was that i would look at the the cover of the first issue of the thing that we're covering and then I would just sort of see what I could glean from it before I started reading anything. Uh-huh. Uh, I have written here, what's the deal with this? <laughs> You're looking at the, the cover of Zot number one? Yes, the cover of Zot number one. Maybe I, I can pull it up here. I believe features our four main characters. I got to say, like, the, the art here is like, it's obviously it's not bad. I would say it's unrefined even compared to what we get from him within like five issues. Yeah, because I think, I found the art in this to be pretty tremendous. Um, I know, I know what you mean. That like, but like, yeah, this this cover art, like Jenny's face is very weird. Yes, the like perspective of it is kind of weird. Yeah, I I just think obviously he's still very young, and I think this is one of those books where, like, page by page, you can see him kind of developing as an artist and and getting better at the things that he wants to get better at. And and Scott McCloud, I think as like a person is is very self-deprecating in sort of his self-assessment so i think like certainly in the in the like the trade of the black and white stuff i have he like looks back at it and is like kind of embarrassed <laughs> of the art uh, at times and will write about it and i think i think he probably likewise looks back at this art and usually is kind of like this is a little embarrassing <laughs> that that it's out here um but yeah i think for the most part the art is very good obviously like from a the we're we're mostly talking about the aesthetic of it is not always like the cleanest or or the most appealing maybe in this this like earliest issue but the storytelling of it as far as like figuring out what's going on and like the flow of the panels is pretty uh pristine sort of right from the get-go yeah i i found he was he does a lot of really interesting things in terms of like how the page itself is laid out like i think it's even in the first issue where he sort of has like a, a, a gradient or a, a background with like a design on it. Like I remember one page, I don't have the specific one in front of me, but it's like there's a big Zot head in the background while he's sort of narrating. And then the panels, it feels like the panels are less, you know, like breaking up the page and more of the panels are inside the page. Right. You're thinking of the page where he like explains about Sirius 4 and yeah. sort of like introduces the key. Yeah. Where, yeah, you've got like his head in the, the upper right corner and there's this sort of like space scape. Which, yeah, that, that definitely struck me. And then there are obviously more as things go on. Like there's a crazy, the, a lot of Deco stuff is crazy. Yeah. The, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to get to Deco because I think he's like pretty transparently Scott McCloud's favorite character. <laughs> and, and certainly the place where he's most able to just sort of like go wild. Yeah, that definitely feels like a breakthrough kind of part. But yes, we'll get to that. Um Going back to the cover for a brief moment, um, I definitely you. I think I can see the 
Astro Boy influence, mm-hmm. uh, which, which I he knew... talks about and writes about in the letters pages at one point. Yes, I knew I knew that that was an influence, and then he does mention it in issue three. He says he talks about a Japanese comic art comics artist named Tezuka, and then in my head I thought to myself that the way that he wrote that feels like he pronounces it Tezuka. <laughs> uh, yes, I think that is <laughs> is probably a pretty safe bet. And I mean, like obviously he's uh, sort of talking at a lower level for people who have, I assume at this point, basically no familiarity with manga. Yeah. I think yeah, I think the the Japanese influence is um, like visible for one thing, but it's like so closely associated with this comic because like the the whole like manga scene wasn't really developed in North America at the time. Like you could get stuff, but compared to like to now, where um, it's like easily a competitor with like kind of the superhero stuff and other other sort of mainstream comics. Yeah, it, it just wasn't as widely known. And so I think when people are trying to look look at the North American comic scene and be like, where do we start to see like the influence of Japanese artists starting to creep in? Zot is one of the like clear sort of mileposts where it's like this guy obviously was like reading Astro Boy while while working on it. And like the like the way he has Zot rendered like posed and and like the swooshes that follow him around through the air and yeah i think i think you can see a lot of astro boy um in his in his general sensibility yeah the big the big thing actually that stuck out to me that i saw as i haven't read astro boy or i'm not super familiar with astro boy i don't have a i've definitely read or i'm more familiar with manga and anime than you yes although i don't i don't have a ton of historical insight into that really um, but the main thing that I saw a manga influence is the humor, a lot of reaction panels, like the way people are drawn reaction panels, mm-hmm. the the mixing of tones. Like, I'm, I mean, I don't, again, it's a place where my ignorance of what comics were like at the time might fail me, but it did feel like the way, the, the humor, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, it is, it's very dry. I don't know. It feels sort of slice of lifey rather than having like crazy situations and like crazy character. Although, you know, there are crazy <laughs> <There's> <laughs> certain certain crazy situations and characters that <laughs> arise in Zot. I, I was, yeah, I was talking about, uh, or not talking about, but I was looking at how Butch on the cover of the first one of the first issue is a human. And then there's a an alternate or an original version where he's drawn as a monkey and Scott McCloud mentions that like, he was like, well, I wanted to preserve that. So I mm-hmm. drew him as a human instead. It is, it is funny to see though, how like obviously Butch's design from the get go is like so <laughs> yes, evocative of a monkey. Like the he page, has a very simian face, <laughs> the page where he finds her like playing with the frog. And there, it's like the first close up shot of his face. It's like, you can almost see Scott McCloud, like rubbing his hands together in anticipation <laughs> being like, this guy's going to be a monkey. <laughs> it's a real, he has like a planet of the apes face. Yeah. He's got like the pronounced brow and like his ears are huge. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But we, so we start actually the, the inside of the first issue, like the inside cover has this introduction by Scott McCloud, uh, which I think, you know, is definitely, it definitely gives us a key to some of the things that we'll be reading into as the book goes on. Um, the big thing is like, he sort of 
talks about the well there's the fact that the this alternate earth where Zod lives is 1965 mm-hmm. and that sort of retro futurist idea yeah. especially with a focus on you know sort of this optimistic ideology i think is a big part of the aesthetic of the book yes yeah uh, it's very clear that retrofuturism is like a a big inspiration not just in terms of like the subject matter but i think thematically and what he wants to explore as well because jenny jenny is like very taken with zot's world like from from the moment she arrives she's kind of like wow this is incredible Uh, my earth is like so so um like shabby compared to this one and i think when we get into the black and white issues you'll see that pushed even further and it's it's yeah it's interesting that mcleod also is kind of like the the world the future world that we imagined is still attainable and and zot's world is kind of representative of that but at the same time like he kind of goes to such lengths to demonstrate how much even though um like zot's zot's earth is like exciting and um and and hopeful and in some ways uh, a realization of that vision it's like clearly not perfect um and uh, and you know there's there's still evil at work in the world there's still like some of it quite ominous like nine jack nine is like a terrifying oh, character yeah. um and like deco is also like a, a very horrifying character in his own way um uh, but yeah like these these i think i think he is interested in the idea of like this hopeful uh and like idealized future world but obviously like you know obviously the comic needs to have conflict of some kind but i don't think that the the um sort of darkness is is exclusively coming from like serious four in the way that maybe he he envisioned when he first sort of started working on it even things like um like on the very first page when it introduces zot it uses this this line that um, I think we hear repeated a few times where it says he's fought on a, a dozen worlds, rushed headlong into a hundred deadly battles and saved the lives of thousands. But then later on, when Jenny brings that up, he's like, <laughs> yeah, I, actually, I fought on like two worlds and saved the lives of dozens. <laughs> yeah, he, he um, walks it back. Yeah. Uh, and which is funny because I don't think like I think when Scott McCloud conceived of the character and conceived of the comic he he wrote that line like straight faced he's like yes he is this like buck rogers kind of uh, um like flash gordon type character who despite being 13 which <laughs> <laughs> yeah when at any point when they weren't talking about how the characters are 13 did you look at either him or jenny no. in the way they look behave and speak and think this is a 13 year old <laughs> <laughs> very much if enough. i if i have a criticism of <laughs> some of this stuff i think the they're i mean they, they should have just been a little older i yeah, think they it, been like it would have been fine for them to be 16 and i think yeah. by the time we get to the black and white stuff they are aged up a bit to be like 15 or 16 yeah like when when jenny is first introduced and like there's you know i think pretty immediately we there's some kind of connection between the two of them and at that point like we've already been introduced to jenny as being 13 and i was like well this is weird and then it's like oh zod is (laughs) also also 13 (laughs) (laughs) like okay um yes but going back to what you said definitely um he sort of the things he talks about in the opening letter um there's sort of an oblique reference to 
like nuclear power. He like he says he describes our world as a world where we've gained the power to obliterate the future altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like I that made me think like, oh, this is very much a Cold War era. Like yeah, definitely this is the early eighties. But yeah, so that I think that is sort of the main thing I wanted to talk about, or the main thing I took away from this is it's despite sort of being billed as and Scott McCloud talks about it this way. The people in the letters page talk about it all this way all the time. Like they say, this is so refreshing because like it's having fun. It's not dark. But then as we progress, I don't really feel like it is that way. Like I feel like it is, it is like a very serious, like despite the tone and despite the characters, it is a very serious comic about some very like extremely serious things. Yeah, I, and I think what what people are connecting with when they say that is what you were kind of identifying, the fact that it takes time to be like and and now like, you know, we're going to we're going to have a joke here or like the issue, I think it's number 3 um when they are uh, like Butch has been turned into a monkey and uh Zot's Uncle Max is like, I'm going to try and fix this gun and they're like, okay, while you do that, we're going to like go to the arcade <laughs> and it's time for <laughs> yeah. like a three page sequence where like Zot and Jenny just like hang out and don't really even have dialogue. It's it's just like, I'm going to draw like some cool holographic landscapes uh, for three pages. And, and also like, we're going to get like the funny interaction of Butch and Peabody who are like, <laughs> obviously like an odd couple. I, I kind of wish we got more of them <laughs> throughout because it's a, it, that's like a funny dynamic that he obviously keyed in on very quickly of being like, who are the funniest two characters to put together? Obviously Butch and Peabody. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so it's like, it's like, we're going to pause the story from advancing really at all for like half an issue and spend it on like Butch and Peabody hanging out at the arcade and Jenny and Zot like bonding on, on this ride that they go on. Yeah, definitely. I, I think the, I think a lot of it is it's serious stuff and that it's, but it's also, it's filtered through the lens of Zot's worldview and, you know, and we sort of have Zot and Jenny as sort of contrasting views where, a lot of times she is sort of trying to not not you know bring zot back to earth but it's clear that zot isn't just this completely carefree guy that he appears to be and she is sort of trying to tap into that deeper emotion of it yeah and and i think there's as well like you can see him clearly in some cases deciding to like not be dark like in late in the story um when they set the trap for them, uh, like when when um, I think it's General Shrap and uh, and Nine Jack Nine like set the trap for them at the cathedral where they've been like hiding out, and Nine Jack Nine ambushes them. He like shoots Vic, and I was like, "Whoa, they killed Vic! Like this is crazy." I put that in the next panel. He's just like, "Ouch!" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I'm like, injured. I'm and I was like, "No, like." I feel like in a in a more kind of like grim faced comic of the day, like he would just be dead because he doesn't really yeah, but, do anything for the rest of the story. But then uh, it's I, like what what happens in in the other you know, earlier in the story is like you have the part with the uh, Prince Drufus. Yeah, <laughs> great love name. Drufus. <laughs> I'm very into Drufus. Um, but yeah, you have the part where it seems like they're gonna die, and then they don't die. 
and then he gets but shot, then he, yeah. And then he, and then he, he doesn't, doesn't die, die again, <laughs> and then he does die. Yeah, I was so obviously that's a very impactful, or at least I thought it was a very effective and impactful death. Um, yes, definitely. But it did fake me out, where I was like, "Wow, he's shot. He's gonna die. Oh, he didn't die. I guess they're gonna like keep going." But to have him just like succumb to his wounds the next morning, in a way, I think that's very effective because it sort of drives home like how pointless it it was that he died to to an extent where like obviously it's pointless that he died because even though he's like just been talking with Vic about how like he needs to learn how to assert himself and wield the authority that he has and then he's unable to do so to save Vic's life even even despite trying so then he gets shot and it's kind of yeah so right there it's kind of like how pointless but then the fact that the real reason he dies is that the soldiers leave even though Vic is saying he's still alive and he just like slowly goes like succumbs to his wounds I think is the best the best way to put it over the course of like another like 18 hours yeah and it's all I guess also that the idea of that being a very un showy un cinematic or however you want to describe what what's 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 the word that's cinematic but for comics <laughs> uh cinematic is a is a word that's used to describe comics quite a bit yeah. not so much in in this era but uh yeah but yeah so it's it's very unshowy or un you know it's not very exciting to have yeah. someone get shot and then not die yeah and in, then die it's, it's like in some ways it's perfectly fitting with drufus's narrative because he is kind of like this goof like <laughs> he's he's kind of just like this sad he's sack a character yeah he's a drufus he's he's like this sad cat sack character the whole time and then even though like obviously he demonstrates his character in trying to save vic at the end but he still like he goes out in a very like drufus fashion that you i think in some ways you might be expecting the arc of his character to be like no he comes into his own and he's able to save vic and like return to be the rightful king of Sirius 4 but instead like he's still he's still drufus <laughs> <laughs> yes that i guess i guess that's the thing is like he's he's not really a hero like he wasn't supposed to be a hero and it's not it's it's not just that it, he like he wants to be a hero but it's not his natural inclination like we see him being pushed into it throughout and like his uncle's pressure is part of it his his feeling of like a competitive nature with thought that is (laughs) unreciprocated it's also (laughs) part of it um but but yeah it's it's kind of like the the tragedy of his character yeah um but yes going back to sort of the idea of you know shooting vic and having that not be a death um i feel like the big example of that is deco and the way that that is handled so do we do we want to talk about deco sure let's let's uh, get into deco who according to the according to the poll (laughs) that that they hold for people's favorite characters is resoundingly everyone's favorite character yeah well his design is incredible just like off the top yeah he's got (laughs) some spirally eyes he's got the chrysler building as his head (laughs) yeah (laughs) with some insane spiral eyes yeah um and i I think there's like a there's like a dumb uh, oh he i think it's issue three like he appears in full at the end of issue two right um and then issue three is like about is like assault on castle deco 
I think there's a certain charm to just like how dumb the pun is <laughs> that it's like my old my old friend Arthur Decker, aka Deco, yes. which I always like. I do always refer to him in my mind as Art Deco uh, to <laughs> dumb the pun down even further. But and I think that kind of like punning, even with a character like Deco, who is like both tragic and at t- like at times scary his 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 like he comes back spoilies for uh <laughs> the black and white issues but when he comes back in the black and white issues he is like truly it's a very different appearance but he's he not not actual appearance his design is the same but he's he's not like leading this swarm of robots it's a very different uh conflict than what we see in these issues but he's like pretty he's pretty terrifying and to have a guy whose name is art deco <laughs> and whose head is the chrysler building and who just has these like spiral eyes also achieve menace i think is part of the like appeal of uh, of the book yeah i think and i think the reason that people really latch on to deco is like that's really when the comic go for me at least like goes to another level because like the first two issues like you know it's like them like in like the tron world it's like that stuff is good but it's i think that's more in line with what people sort of talk about it as where it's like like (laughs) i i'm a big fan of the the de-evolutionaries evolutionaries are hilarious they will also continue to appear periodically well there when they come back that was (laughs) that's a real highlight yeah um, but yes, yeah, so like all that stuff, like that feels more in line with sort of what we, what the series is billed as, where it's sort of, you know, this like, it's a sort of sci-fi setting. It's got a hero. It's sort of intentionally not leaning into dark and gritty ideas like that. That's what the first couple of issues feel like. And then Deco shows up and it's like, oh, this is also going to be like, rich with pathos (laughs) i think uh, i think deco that like deco's story also starts to get more into sort of like the thematic theme theme thematic theme uh the thematic like thrust of the story um with like the retro futurism stuff that we were talking about before because we have like the de-evolutionaries are the first villains we meet and their whole obsession is like back to the trees technology and like progression and advancement is bad and they are like villainous because of their refusal to move forward but then you get like the flip side and and there's another villain who we'll meet later called dr bellows who's like this steampunk villain who similarly is like obsessed with uh with obsolete technology and and has a similar sort of refusal to move forward and then you get deco's story where it's his like insistence on advancement and in in replacing the human element within himself with the the like cybernetic implants that begins to warp his perspective so that he's he's like continually abstracting until the humanity is completely gone from his work and that's when he becomes like truly truly dangerous and villainous um is because he has pushed progress past the point where you know where where it's benefiting uh like humanity or or where it's um augmenting his humanity to the point where it has uh supplanted his humanity and so i think that's like that's kind of what speaks to uh scott mcleod thematically through the whole book is that he's like it's not it's not necessarily like sci-fi stories and and that kind of thing are exciting but what he really wants to get at is the sort of lost 
sense of of like when when i think when he looks at that kind of like retro futurist stuff what he really sees is like the humanity that's still conveyed through a lot of it um and so he like with with nine jack nine who is like this electronic marvel um rendered very very like menacingly he's a very ominous presence with deco who has like literally supplanted his humanity with technology they represent one kind of danger Whereas the de-evolutionaries and Dr. Bellos and these these like Luddites who refuse to progress represent like the other side of that coin. So anyways, all, all that to say, I think the Deco storyline where you start to see him move, move past the like trapped in the past stuff and start to look at kind of like the dangers of the future um, at, that go hand in hand with kind of the the opportunity and the promise of the future is where it starts to really kind of start firing for him yes i i agree and also the, like that's around the same time we get to like what becomes the sort of central story of the like basically the second half of the run i'd say with like the sort of the manufactured war for personal profit which obviously mm-hmm. like big united states energy <laughs> so i put it in my notes like the idea of like manufacturing a war in order to like rally people and yes use that to like personally enrich yourself is yes. like <laughs> ahead of his time certainly or uh, or not or very much of his time i'd say yes like it, it certainly made me think of like cia backed regime change in foreign <laughs> countries we don't have to get too deep into that mainly because certainly. i i'm not that educated about it but that yes that was the kind of energy it had for me like it feels extremely political and also that it's so the key is so tied up in their religion mm-hmm. and that they're using this religious aspect as their impetus for going to war with earth um yes and so then sort of in that's like issue five and then that's when the king gets assassinated, which did also surprise me. Um, and then we sort of get into all that stuff where it's Drufus and Vicar in the desert. There's the queen who shows up. Mm-hmm. It's it gets a little like a little busy at this point, plot wise. Yes, I feel like this. That's when it sort of like it crystallizes into more of like a serialized thing. I think partly because he f- he sort of realized that like the story he was telling was so big and like he didn't want to just like keep telling this one long story for like you know 20 Forever. plus issues <laughs> yeah at which is like yeah i think i think you have like nailed it completely is that he he set up like this huge story that uh, like about this interplanetary potential war but obviously what appeals to him more is like the smaller scale stuff and so he's yeah he's he does feel kind of stuck and i think it's very telling that like so i like to to get in a bit out of the into the meta of the not the meta but the um the the context surrounding the book after he finishes these 10 issues uh he like goes on hiatus because the book is losing money and when he comes back with the black and white book it's like so comparatively low stakes <laughs> that it's like so obvious that he he has had time to like working through the the like finale of these 10 issues and 
and and having to wrap up this like huge story that he laid out for himself i feel like he does probably look at um like particularly like i think obviously issue nine is a lot of fun with the return of the de-evolutionaries and issue 10 is kind of like the big the big climax um and i think i think there's some good stuff in issue eight as well when they visit like the future of series oh, yeah. four that's, i love that's probably my favorite issue of the whole run mm-hmm. but uh but i i think like that some of that stuff feels like very means to an end to me where he's like i have to do this stuff to like finish finish the story but some of it i only like really care about because i want to get to that point where zot like turns to the camera and tells the people of Sirius four that they have to like think for themselves like yeah and and i think that it was he was able to crystallize during the hiatus to be like it was it was a lot of like work to get there and i think i can get to the same like i think i can say what i'm wanting to say without having to go like so grandiose and so even though like we'll see deco return nine jack nine comes back and they like they tell very high stakes to a degree stories i think they are the the whole feel of it is like we spent we spend a lot more time on earth for one thing um even before well i won't spoil for you what uh, what <laughs> what Please happens but spoil. yeah just suffice to say we spend a lot more time on earth we spend a lot more time with jenny i think in a way jenny sort of shifts to become the central character in a way that he he sort of intended from the start and then like zot kind of got got away from him in a sense where he's like this guy's personality is too big he's too important even zot himself feels like he sometimes becomes like secondary to the bigger story being told like there are points where it's like uh, jenny especially because she doesn't have a very active role in any of these proceedings but Mm -hmm it feels like both of them sort of become like, like they're part of like a team that is like the two of them, Max, the queen, Vic, Butch, Peabody, like it feels (laughs) great name for starters. Um, Absolutely wonderful name. When he calls Peabody James as though he's like his driver, (laughs) I was like, wow. Peabody is already the perfect, (laughs) the perfect Butler name. Why would you? (laughs) Uh, but yeah, you're, you're right. And I think that's exactly why I think what I kind of pick up on is in issues like the, um, I think it's number seven when Drufus dies, uh, the Drufus death issue. I feel like every time he leaves the desert, you can almost feel him being like, uh, and I guess that like, there's other stuff I have to get done this issue, but like what he really wants to do is like hang out in the desert with Vic. uh, Yeah. It's it's issue, it's issue six where like they spend, where most of the issue is spent on them being in the desert and talking to each other. And like, yeah, I think he wishes he had room and the same thing with issue eight when they go through the door, like, and I guess the, the issue is devoted to that pretty completely in that situation. But I think he does wish that he had the sort of bandwidth to have a whole issue be about those things without also having to serve the much bigger narrative that like has to be like, <laughs> it's like, it has to be like put on a fast track kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even like, yeah, I, I just, it feels to me like certain characters obviously appeal to him more than others. Like, 
I I think that the the comic at this point does have an issue with the cast just being too big. Like there's too many heroes and there's too many villains. Like the whole conspiracy. Yes. Like only only von Klockman and uh, and General Schrapp end up being of any consequence. And really, I feel like even General Schrapp probably should have been cut out. Like it should have just been von Klockman. Um, well, like the I, whole the whole way through. I did have a much. note here that there's a guy named Weavis Swimbler. <laughs> yes, Weavis Swimbler certainly. <laughs> I don't want to lose comic, <laughs> guys. If you're if you're tracking uh, key issues for Weavis Swimbler, <laughs> may, may I recommend? I think Zot number three is his first appearance, or number four. <laughs> um, I would say Pinkerton, probably my favorite Weavis album. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> save it for your Weezer podcast. Oh, um, indeed. But yeah, I. I it's it's very full of ideas but it's definitely like over full at times yes that's the thing is like it's so rich with those ideas like i that's why like it really like blew me away at point like i feel like the second half especially like because it seems like every issue has one of these amazing sort of moments in it like you have issue six which is all about the desert you have issue eight which is all about behind the door you have issue ten, which is like the big finale with the arm. The arm is oh, I really cannot get over how funny the de-evolutionary army like <laughs> praise the blue monkey. <laughs> yes, the de-evolutionaries are uh, always a good time. But yeah, and and each issue is very full. Like, and we were talking before we started. Like, I'm I'm looking at issue four right now. It's like twenty eight pages of story. And in that, you get the entire assault on Castle Deco, uh, which is like al- already there. Like he splits into two, so you have the story of like Vic and Zot doing the assault in Castle Deco, uh, and like fighting the robots and looking for the key. And then you have the whole like B plot of Deco holding uh, Jenny and Max captive, along with the Pole Patrol, <laughs> most of the Pole Patrol, which great, great name, great, great body of people. Um, I like how they don't have eyes. <laughs> yeah, I like. I think it, it's funny. Obviously, I'm not sure if you were reading like all of the um, the stuff that's in like uh, uh, the beginning where he's like writing writing letters or responding to things. But yeah, he for talks. The most part. He talks um, at one point about how like he didn't realize how captain marvel zot is and how like cc beck and uh, not which yeah i i kind of <laughs> it made me feel dumb because when i like first of all when i saw him i was like it's like cc beck he's squinting and the like red uniform with the lightning bolt on it didn't yeah <laughs> didn't connect <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah i think i yeah i think he loves he loves a good uh, a good squinting face and certainly like Zot does it the most but the pole patrol are all on it as well, but anyways um so you have like you have the whole B plot of like Deco's backstory and like the tragedy of Arthur Decker and the uh, climax of him like seeing Jenny as Sarah and and that like whole confrontation which is like that's all that's like easily an issue's worth of material but then it's like. And uh, now it's time for us to go to Sirius 4 and we're going to spend the whole ride there doing like Zot's origin story, which is like not, <laughs> yeah, not that much of an origin story. It's like, it's he true. was smart. He was athletic. His parents went missing and he became a hero. It's like, 
okay <laughs> like i kind of pieced that together i think that's that would have been better left as subtext other than that like the reveal that nine jack nine was the the one who killed them kind of loses its punch if uh, if we don't get the origin story but i feel like there was another you know there was another way to do it that uh didn't <laughs> didn't require like five or six story pages <laughs> Yeah, it, it it is very low. Like when you know when we talked about it first, I was like, oh, I only have to read, I have to read ten issues. Like that should be pretty easy. But it ends up like it is like a full graphic novel worth of material when it's like it's basically what like probably two hundred fifty pages at least. Yeah, probably more. Because like yeah, ten ten issues of a standard like by today's standards comic would already be like two twenty there, and these issues are definitely longer than that. I'm actually I'm not sure if they're even like consistent in length issue to issue. I wonder if he had the freedom to to change that. I think um, they're mostly about thirty pages, including the letters and everything. But maybe it's 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 not necessarily exactly. And of course, we have to make room for the Kurt Busiek backup story in one issue. <laughs> yeah, I I didn't read that. I don't know if you did. Oh, but, I did. Uh, it's uh, what is it called? The Magic Shop, yeah. which is I don't understand the point. Oh, maybe so. Were were there more chapters that came out in another comic of of the Magic Shop? Yeah, because it's like it. It feel like it gets talked about as like part one of six. Uh, maybe. Not in any zots, at least, as far as no, I've yeah, seen. No, yeah, not in any zots, certainly. Um, but yeah, so the magic shop is about, like, a girl who's, like, living with her grandpa or her uncle, her grandpa. And then, like, he, like, owns a magic shop and she, like, takes a, a magic ring or is given a magic ring, which, like, gives her super basketball playing abilities. <laughs> And Wait, then, really? Yes. <laughs> All right. Maybe, I think I might need to go. It gives back her and super basketball playing shop. abilities, and then it gives her super transforming into a cat abilities. <laughs> and then she transforms her friends that she was playing basketball with into cats. Is it and possible that uh, Kurt Busiek has a story by credit on Like Mike? Uh, that's a good question. He should get. He should. <laughs> yes, he needs a story credit. Uh, it's adapted. It's an adaptation <laughs> for, of the magic shop. His, also, the basketball scene in the Catwoman movie, yes, is also uh, this is an important text for that as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yes, and so the other the other thing that comes across in the letters page is that he was having a tough time with this making this book because it. I assume because it was so big and because he was writing and penciling it. Like it started yeah. out allegedly monthly and I think very quickly was getting delayed. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of uh, story about the delays in the in the letters pages. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think you're right. He's doing a lot of the heavy lifting there. I think he's probably I think he inks most issues as well, although I think I noticed that uh an inker comes on for maybe some of the later issues. Ain't I an um, inker? But like, yeah, that for for the creation process, though, like he's, I assume he's writing a script, <laughs> but that that might have like some little notes for himself about uh, about some of the art direction. But then he's penciling it and inking it, which is basically like going over the whole the whole issue twice. Which, you know, most uh, most artists or many artists struggle to get uh, like all their pages in on time when all they're doing is penciling. 
so for him to be writing penciling inking obviously is a huge undertaking and then he's he does have uh, i think a letterer and a colorist working with him for the entire yeah run maybe different letterers and colorists but yeah it it definitely makes sense that it fell behind and uh and like i said he was losing money <laughs> like basically the entire run he yeah he talks he talks about it at the very end so yeah so issue 10 is sort of the conclusion of this main storyline that we've been following for the first 10 issues and then he talks about in the letters page he wanted to do it this other two-parter one which introduces is it blotch yeah i think so he's just got like a blotch for a head it's it's just he's just like a he looks like a paint stain and he's smoking a cigar yeah (laughs) uh but yes and so yeah the thing he talks about which sort of stuck out to me was like he said the um let me read exactly what he says here for basically he says four months from now when our two-part planet earth story is concluded i would have already ruined that story forever like (laughs) so like he's sort of looking at this in like the broader artistic scheme of things and saying like i don't want to make something i'm not happy with yeah so instead i will just not do it (laughs) Um, can I just detour off uh, of back course, to the always. character popularity contest and say <laughs> that the fact that Floyd beat Peabody is uh, unacceptable. <laughs> I mean, look at Floyd. Floyd Floyd is cute, and but, the fact that he beat Peabody is unacceptable. <laughs> the fact that he's introduced to the comic by just a, a, like an arrow pointing to him with a question mark. It's like, hmm? <laughs> er? who's, who's this guy? <laughs> It's a good bit. <laughs> but yes, um, the de-evolutionaries tying for last place with Zarbim <laughs> uh, and <laughs> and Sarah is also pretty tough. Yeah, and the Dreeps being tough, like those <laughs> the animals from the yeah. weird zoo place they go to, which are in like one panel. And also, did they also beat Peabody? Because yes. likewise, completely unacceptable. <laughs> Yes. Um, <sighs> yeah. Um, one character we haven't really talked about is Nine Jack Nine, who I feels very much it's it. There's some kind of archetype that is like the gentleman, not even yeah, like the gentleman assassin. Yeah, or the, like the gentleman thief is definitely like a, yes, a thing definitely. for sure. But yeah, but then this is like a, a certain like. It's more sinister than the gentleman thief. Like, yeah, definitely. I feel like the gentleman he's... thief is like, ain't it crazy? I'm stealing your stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's, whereas... he's got like a certain charm, but he's not really threatening. Whereas Nine Jack Nine is like extremely, extremely threatening. threatening. Yeah, from like his first appearance, it's it's partially a design thing for sure. I think the like totally blacked out head, no matter what, uh, with just like the eyes is is inherently threatening i think the fact that he's dressed like like a carnival barker <laughs> like yeah. a ringmaster he's wearing a straw boater yeah on top of that is also menacing i think like the the uh like unexplained nature of his abilities is also like he's he's very shrouded in mystery it's like what exactly can he and can he not do yeah i didn't i didn't really clock until like halfway through when they explicitly mentioned it's like oh he's moving through like electrical electronic devices yeah and he's got like the computer chip eyes that kind of like hint at that as well he and deco it's hard for me to decide between them from like a design perspective because i think they're trying to 
achieve different things uh and and clearly scott mcleod has more fun with deco but i think from like a villain standpoint like nine jack nine is is head and shoulders above anybody else and you know it's it's definitely the sign of a good character when they leave you wanting more um and it definitely it definitely leaves you wanting more and his when he makes his return uh in like the second um chunk of issues he is like terrifying (laughs) especially like when i first read them i had never read any of these issues so to have that be your introduction to him it's like whoa you mean when he comes back in the black and white issues yeah well i can look forward to that you certainly Um, can yeah so wow we've already been going for a while now um so what what do you have any sort of more broad overarching thoughts on what you thought so so you read the black and white issues first yeah because as far as availability like getting your hands on the black and white issues is way easier um than the color issues right so so what obviously that has a different perspective for you with without spoiling the future issues hopefully like how how do these read to you I, I was surprised at the depth of them um, because, like I said, Scott McCloud is kind of like self-deprecating by nature and is quick to sort of be like, ah, yeah, that stuff, like, I hope you like this new stuff. It's way better than that kid stuff I was doing before. And that's kind of how he talks about these issues. So having not read them and having like reading him be sort of like, uh, it's, you know, it's a little by the numbers. It's not, uh, it's not quite as ambitious, uh, from like creatively ambitious is what I'm trying to do uh, with these issues. I was surprised, like I was expecting something a little bit more straightforward. Um, And after like issue two, (laughs) like, like we were saying pretty much as soon as Deco shows up, um, this book is not what I'd call like a straightforward superhero story. So I, I would say I was surprised overall at the quality of the of the issues and the and the story at large. I see where he's coming from in terms of like some of the stuff we've already talked about as far as you know it's it's fairly clear by the end that this kind of like huge story isn't what he wants to be doing. Um, but most of like most of the foundation for what he starts doing in the black and white issues is here. It's clear to see which like characters and ideas he's excited about and what kind of stories he's excited about already. And that's because like they're present. Um, They're not, it's, it's not like reading a completely different comic, even though the, the tonal shift is like pretty noticeable. Um, Or it's not even a tonal shift really, because I think these, these issues are in line tonally with a lot of what's in, um what follows but i guess it 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 really is a scope thing um he he zeroes in so much more on the characters going forward versus these grandiose stories but those like character focused moments are obviously already present and like pretty effective um so it's it's just a matter of kind of um getting rid of what he i think by the end of it has come to view as sort of like set dressing and be like this is what i'm actually focused on yeah that's that's very interesting to me because I I liked this more than I expected to, but partly based because I told you you're going to be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> it's well, it was partly because like I I mean not just because I 
because I was expecting it to be good. But even the way you talked about it was sort of like, yeah, well, there's these first issues, like, and then it gets good. And so <laughs> I enjoyed this so much. And now I'm wondering, like, what does it look like when it quote unquote gets good? Because like right. I thought this was awesome. And and I, I like the way that it blends that very big story with the sort of characterization stuff and the very, you know, personal moments, small moments, and the way that like I think the best example is when they go behind the door, like where the answer the to the big thing is never like as simple as it would probably be in another book. Like Yeah, it's it's a good like um anti climax in a way that issue. And the ending as well. Like it's it's not really about a big fight, it's about like a fight for the souls of like Sirius Four, and <laughs> yeah. it, it reminded me of uh, what's what's the name of the Silver Surfer comic that uh, I wanted to say Stanley and Mobius, yeah, Silver Surfer Parable, yeah, exactly, yeah. I think that's that's the same idea with like talking about superheroes sort of as these godlike figures and the way that your godhood is perceived by normal people and the prop like the problems that arise from that especially when you're someone like zot or even like silver surfer not that i know a lot about silver surfer but like someone who is very like uncomplicated right yeah it's it's interesting i think that's like a good thing to bring up because i feel like a lot of the today's discourse around superheroes is very influenced by grant morrison and and their whole thing is kind of like superheroes are are like modern gods um and like superman is is a character who we should like look to to learn from because he he has like kind of our collective wisdom within his stories and from superman we can learn how to like be good people and be the kinds of people we should be which is like inspirational and and i think appeals to me a lot in comics and and is part of why i've always like identified with comics but i think it's it's funny that here mcleod kind of like preemptively responds to that to say like it's not it's not that it's wrong to find inspiration in Zot and he's like there, like he says, he's there to be a friend, but not a dictator. And he doesn't have the answers that the people of Sirius four are looking for. Um, and as, as much as he's like there to, to draw inspiration from when they start to look at him as a godlike figure is where he's kind of like, no, I'm out. I'm 13. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, he is 13. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, famously that, 13. Just that it's, yeah, a deconstruction almost of superhero. It does feel ahead of its time in that way. The fact that it sort of is like superheroes are this very, and maybe that gets back into the idea, the ideas he's talking about. It's sort of like a return to more like classical superheroes and focusing less on the dark stuff like that. Superheroes are superheroes. They save people. They can't do more than that. Right. And they aren't supposed to be politicians and they aren't supposed to lead people in that way. Like they're supposed to do what they do. Yes. Um, but yeah, as, as a whole, I think this, yeah, this, this whack of issues is very good. Obviously it was, it was well received, if not necessarily well uh, bought. <laughs> <laughs> well purchased. But yeah, like, uh, like he he wins a few awards uh for this this run 
like he won he won the the kirby award the the precursor to uh, the eisners and the harveys for uh i think like best new talent or something something like that what was the award called oh it's best new series for uh for Zot, and then he wins a separate award, the Russ Manning Award for Best New Talent. So obviously, it was like recognized by the industry as as like pretty a pretty triumphant work, especially for someone so young. Yeah, the Jack Kirby Awards. I told you. I, so I I want to talk briefly about the Jack Kirby Awards. Do your Kirby's chunk. <laughs> do do my Kirby chunk. So I I have like a certain fascination with uh, the Eisners in particular because. They're so controversial in a way. Like some people will say that they're like the Oscars of comics, basically, and other people are like, "No, they're not. That's stupid. They're nothing alike. They're nowhere near as prestigious." Like the their reputation just seems to like vary quite wildly. So I'm, I think we'll probably end up talking about Eisner's quite a bit because I'll I'll always be interested in like looking to see like when this was coming out, like who who was winning the Eisner, right? <laughs> well, while they were working on this, like what were the what were the well-received books? I think it's interesting to look at both when a book is like up for an Eisner or wins an Eisner or like is like maybe maybe should have been in the conversation. And I think it's also funny to look and be like, yeah, well, this was coming out. So also was this extremely classic. <laughs> right. This is what this person was doing. But anyways, so he won the first ever uh, Kirby Award f- um, for Zot which was established. So they established the Kirby Awards as an idea from two executive at Fantagraphics, which um, is like... They make the designs for the pop bottles? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, the juggalo artists uh, at Fantagraphics. <laughs> That's Fago. <laughs> oh, <laughs> whoops. Oh, well. Uh, okay. No, Fantagraphics, I, I, it's like, they're kind of like the artsy fartsy, um, of the more like corporate publishers. Um, they're, they're the ones who kind of like have taken it on themselves to be like, let's find the real like aesthetic value in comics. Let's find, let's, let's like pull the art out of this like kind of pop stuff. So in 1983, um, the comic buyer's guide launched, uh, like fan award where where fans could like write in and vote and a couple of the executives at fantagraphics were basically like oh that's dumb <laughs> there yeah why are we like the fans decide yeah this? It's, it's yeah basically they were like all right so they that's their all-star game we need to get like the all nba team set up here because basically like we don't want the only recognition that creators Guys, we get. love sports <laughs> we do love sports we don't want the only recognition creators get to be like dictated by the fans when we know that there's artists who are working like uh, at a less visible level but whose work in our opinion is is better or more important or whatever like deserves recognition even though it's not hitting the eyes um and so they they assign that kind of like portfolio to dave olbrick who was editing one of the magazines like the industry magazines that uh that fantagraphics was publishing and so for the first two Kirby Awards, he organized those by like writing directly to professionals and being like, hey, we're doing this. Let's uh, like, you know, let's get in here. Let's get it going. 
so he he was like the administrator for the awards in 1985 which is when uh zot won best new series and then the other stuff is like swamp thing won like a million awards uh crisis on infinite earths uh won an award for um like best limited series uh alan moore you know lots of stuff for alan moore best guy best guy best beard Um, award yeah (laughs) Uh, and then again in 1986 but after that he like left the comics industry temporarily um basically to like get a better paying job <laughs> uh, um, wait, the, the guy who Dave, did Dave the awards okay yeah who who was the coordinator but like had really uh i think kind of felt like a sense of personal ownership over it at that point um so like on his way out basically begged them like keep to keep doing the kirby awards it's like important for the industry it's important for the creators um keep that going so they did it again um in 1987 and then for 1988 he was he's back in comics he was working he was like one of the guys who helped start malibu comics which uh like was the the infrastructure for image uh when they first got going and like eventually i think got bought up by marvel um but anyways he's back in comics uh and he's kind of like looking at the the kirby's um and he's like talking to people around the industry and getting this sense that like because it's fantagraphics creators are actually actively kind of like we don't want it we don't like we don't like it we don't want to participate because it's them because fantagraphics one of the magazines they publish is the comics journal um which is like still going today and like i think is is one of the better kind of publications uh, out there as far as writing about comics and like comics journalism outside of news but its reputation for a long time and this is still basically true is that they basically view like most mainstream especially like marvel and dc stuff as garbage um and and have always preferred like more underground stuff more indie stuff um but in order as scott mcleod (laughs) it was learning around this time in order for like comics to be viable as a career most creators work on those books at some point or another whether it's because they want to or because they need the paycheck but so but like the comics journal is trashing them constantly so they're reaching out to all these (laughs) professionals being like hey want to participate in our awards and they're all like uh well, you took like a giant dump on everything I did for like this five year stretch of my career. So no. And that's it. Like, that's basically the feedback that he's hearing. So he's like, well, maybe if I get the Kirby's back, since I'm not associated with Fantagraphics anymore, we can like kind of get it going again. So he starts kind of like trying to maneuver to get control of the Kirby's back from Fantagraphics uh, and and basically to say like well like it was the idea originally of like these two Fantagraphics people but I am like the one who administered over the awards all that time so actually I am the owner of the Kirby Awards and Fantagraphics was like uh no <laughs> you you did that as like an assignment from us as our employee we own the awards you were like the guy who worked on them anyways it became like very messy and so eventually Jack Kirby, who like had agreed to obviously lend his name to the award, was still alive at this point and had like presented every year uh, at the awards, um, calls them up and is like, this is dumb. <laughs> like, it's comics. Chill. This is embarrassing. You can't use my name. There's no more Kirby's. Like, do whatever you want. I'm out. Um, yeah, and sounds so like a, sounds like a real nightmare for Nintendo. Oh, woof. 
<laughs> no more Kirby's. Oh, truly terrible. Can't um, use the boomerang anymore. Anyway, so he taps out. He's like Dunzo, and then you're left with Ulbrich and Fantagraphics, who are like, "Well, we both still want to have awards. It's not going to be the Kirby's anymore, no matter what. So we're gonna like do our do our own thing, and uh, we'll we'll each take our own thing." So Ulbrich started the Eisners at that point, named for Will Eisner, right? The the father of the graphic novel. I'm familiar. Um, and like incorporated his own like nonprofit to to run it and like administered it for a couple more years, um, and it has it has grown into like what it is today. And then Fantagraphics started the Harvey Awards, uh, named for Harvey Kurtzman, EC Comics legend. Um, which, it, it, yeah, this is this is where it's funny to me that like the Eisners are like, it's the Academy Award of Comics because the Harveys and the Eisners both come out of the Kirby's. And like, I, yeah, the Harveys don't seem to me to be any less prestigious. They're still, they're still voted on by comics professionals. They're not even like uh, affiliated with Fantagraphics anymore, but for, for whatever reason, the Eisners are the ones that like caught on that people really give a lot of weight to, but yeah, anyways, so that's, that's the Kirby corner. <laughs> um, you, know what, you know what I think the problem is with the Harveys? Do go on. It's on hamburgers. <laughs> what do they know about freaking comic books they got onion rings over there <laughs> uh but yeah it's it's funny to look at like the the awards history of zot where in its first year it's uh it's the best new series at the kirby's and then uh subsequently after the return there's one year where it just like cleans up at the eisners i think it's 96 yeah, what, so what, I was curious, um, obviously Zot is published by an independent publisher, like, what is the state of the industry at the time? Like, is it more sort of Marvel and DC focused, or is there, like, what's what's the opportunity like for a book that is not published by Marvel or DC to actually be successful? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, like Marvel and DC have always been like the big two. They're, they're called that for a reason. I think the fact that you have a book like Zot on the stands and, and a publisher like Eclipse out there makes it a like better period, uh, for, for that kind of thing. There's always been like avenues for underground publishing and like for, for indie comics to get published, but yeah the the it's it's definitely interesting because i would say that right now compared or compared to today the number of like issues that uh, uh any given title would sell was like way higher like a smaller marvel title from the 80s would be like one of the better selling books now and the books right now that are on the cancellation threshold sell like 20,000 even even like 18,000 copies a month that would like not that would not sustain you in the industry in the 80s i'm actually i'm i'm curious cuz i don't know zot's sales numbers i'm not sure if um comicron which is like the the go-to kind of like data crunching site for for monthly sales they have an entry for march 1985 which i don't think zot was coming out at that point oh never mind that was the um month that number 10 came out perfect so zot number 10 sold 3200 issues roughly 
which is uh, not great. Not what you want. No, certainly not what you want. Although, okay, so maybe maybe I'm wrong here. We're we're a little bit like pre '90s boom. The number one selling title that they have information on here was eighty five thousand, which again today would be like let's see let's see how many books sold over eighty five thousand copies in the most recent month. Maybe that they go have to data last for. year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there might, well, there might no be some... sales sales are up this year. Sales uh, are up. Cheers. Um. I'm going to go to monthly sales for March 2020, which will give us a good <laughs> like pre-ish COVID uh, look here. So there were three books that sold over 85,000 copies in March. Um, I don't think there's going to be any that sold. Well, no, there will be some that sold as few as 3,200. Let's get down there, get down in the muck. Some examples of books that sold approximately 3,200 issues. Conan the Barbarian, oof, tough. Conan the Barbarian number one. Sorry, Marvel. Maybe it's uh, maybe this is second month for that. Witchfinder, Genlock. So yeah, the publishers, Genlock is a DC book. I've never heard of this. Sorry. Irrelevant. <laughs> this is like, oh, this is good. <laughs> this is what the show is. The, true, uh, true, I suppose. But we're getting into like, like here's an example. Thor number one sold 3,200 comics, but Thor number three also sold 3,200 comics. So the, the stuff that's moving 3,200 units is like months out of date at this point. And the other stuff, like there's that that's the stuff that's down there from like Marvel and DC. The other stuff that's in this zone that is sustainable despite only selling 3,200 units is from like Dark Horse, Boom, Aftershock, Image, like publishers, publishers that don't, ex don't, don't need to have a comic that's selling 85,000 issues to stay viable. But th this is very, we're far afield now from the original question. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the long we we are on a little bit of a, a little bit of a tangent here i'm gonna go back to uh march of uh 1985 and we'll have a look at some of the publishers who are making the list here other than marvel and dc because truth be told there's not a ton so the highest selling comic that is not marvel or dc is john sable freelance number 26 from first comics so first is like a, a kind of sister not no not sister but they're like they're they're another similar Kissing to cousin. Eclipse uh, publisher um, that like is attracting some of the big name talent to work on more kind of like creator owned stuff around the time. Grimjack, uh, which is by Grimjack, is by somebody famous. Yeah, John Ostrander, uh, who was like a huge writer for DC in the eighties and nineties. Um, Grimjack is on there from first. Judge Dread reprints uh, from Eagle are are doing well. Um, they're so Judge Dread and 2000 AD are like a British magazine. There's a publisher called Eagle that's like basically doing the the American printings the same way that Eclipse will do for Miracle Man. Um, Comico that I've never heard of. Fantagraphics is on here, uh, and then and then we start to get into Eclipse. Eclipse's best selling book is doing 4700. Um, so, you know, Zot, Zot losing money at 32 versus um, whatever Aztec I just Ace. said. As, Aztec Ace uh, is a book I've been wanting to read for a long time. It's by uh, Doug Monk, writer of Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. Oh, yeah. Um, I liked him better as a detective. <laughs> 
uh what's monk's thing is he is he a germaphobe ocd something like that ocd or some kind of undiagnosed illness right some some quirk that makes him eminently watchable yeah i'm sure that makes him love what that's nothing i'm I'm shalubin it it's yes well yeah for sure as you pronounced his name wrong i I was reaching for the pun okay this episode is over (laughs) um okay so yes i think we have well and truly exhausted uh the first 10 issues of ziot yes so so what does our next episode look like? Are we so we're going to be obviously so the idea is he finishes this issue 10, he takes a break. Yeah, I think and he in, worked for like a moving company for a little while. Whoa. And in the letter he says like he's he'll he'll come back, he'll bring back Zot. Like this isn't the this isn't the end by any means, but it's the end of the book in its current form. Mhm. Um and then so so what is it Maybe we can get into this more on the next episode, but what what does it look like when he comes back? Like, what's the context for that? Yeah, well, it's actually, it's interesting. The, like, very last page of the issue is an ad for the next issue of Zot, which is funny because he's, like, already said. <laughs> yeah, he says in the letter, like, whoops. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you'll see it's, it's Jenny uh, standing in, here in our world where like some kid is actively littering <laughs> outside of high school uh, and it says next Jenny faces her greatest challenge can even Zot help her overcome the menace of reality uh, reality in big wavy letters uh, and she is staring despondently at the reader um, yeah, that, so, yeah that looked cool it's it is it's it's very cool like um, I said I mean, like I, that's so like is it like kind of like that's what the book is gonna be now yeah basically and he the, he kind of indicates in this direction he when he's saying his goodbye to jenny he's not saying like it, now it's time for you to go and like i'll will you'll you can come back sometime he's like i'm gonna come visit you so that's very much kind of the the framing like we like i said jenny really shifts into focus as more like the central character and zot is kind of like um Zot's so yeah, like the foil for her worldview, kind of. Yeah, right? he's he's kind of like Manny Pix, Manic Pixie Dream Boy a little bit. Um, where when when you like you get you get him placed into Jenny's world and like the the cast, he's like Roger Rabbit. Uh, Is that fair to say? Where it's like he's like yeah yeah kind of like Jenny like, is sort of like the more like straight woman more realist and then he so it's sort it's about how zot's worldview is incompatible with the real world is that kind of uh, yeah don't, sort don't of i me. mean <laughs> yeah you'll you'll see i would say it's more it's more about reconciling zot and jenny's worldviews to find uh kind of like the the middle ground um but yeah the the like zot cast of characters like other that like max and peabody are still around pretty much everyone else you've encountered in the course of this run they might like pop in uh briefly for like a couple of panels and and the villains like i said deco's gonna be back nine jack nine is back but um zot supporting cast really like shrinks down around those core three characters and then jenny's cast gets built out where you get to see like who her friends at school are basically um and and we'll get to see like a bit of them coming to Zot's world as well, um, but yeah, it, it really positions Jenny as the as kind of the focus character a lot more, and is more focused on 
um what what it's like for her to go from this like insane adventure that she's had in Zot's world back to you know she she's getting dropped back like moments after she left um with like all this new knowledge and experience and then um having to go to her school where the kids are flagrantly littering <laughs> in color no less in color no less and and it will be less uh <laughs> when in fact we return um yeah i i i took a peek at the cover for issue 11 and i was like i can see that <laughs> i can see that this is probably easier for you to draw <laughs> yes uh but again we'll we'll save that for for the yeah. next episode like yeah even you i just pulled it up as well uh and like certainly uh the the interior art i think benefits a lot from not having to um continue to do like all the all the crazy color stuff that yeah the cover still to me looks pretty rough <laughs> i gotta i gotta be honest like he's definitely still um like developing as an artist he's still he's still a young artist for sure yeah and um, it also it lo- it's it's in a different style almost it seems like yeah and and i mean there's a time factor here too like i think we'll see in understanding comics where he's not constrained to the the monthly issue format it's and and the deco issues as well really are a showcase for what he's actually capable of uh as an artist but yeah the the black and white issues i think give him a lot more flexibility to to have fun with with his art and i think it it does look better in black and white it looks a lot better in black and white and um yeah i i do think that he was really pushing himself too much um deadline wise trying to have it be uh be colored as well um but yeah i'm excited i'm excited to get back to it um the the paperback like collection that i have of these issues includes a lot of commentary from him um so that will be fun to get into i think there's we're not doing the the and a half issues that are like mini comics that are not written or drawn by him and like are barely <laughs> like tangentially related to Zot at best um but Sounds i think weird. we they are indeed weird uh i <laughs> Part of, part of why they're... I think they might be a 24-hour comic thing. So while some sometime during the black and white run, he like becomes one of the like founding slash maybe the primary inventor of the 24-hour comic idea, which is that um, it's like a challenge to by yourself do a 24-page comic in 24 hours. And, and he like will later go on to experiment with like improvised comics, basically. Um, yeah, there was... I don't know what it was, but in one issue, there's like a kind of oh, like yeah, the like after the, the or at the party. Yeah, uh, what is that? That is like uh, so. <laughs> go go to his website and go to the web comics tab, um, and click on the morning improv and and read some of the the morning improv stuff. And like, it's it's different from that stuff for sure i yeah i i think that mostly that was like an experiment in like a little bit of a abstraction and like storytelling through the art um but that's the kind of like thing that he just sort of like churns out all the time we're not really going to talk about any of his webcomic stuff um but that like really is uh 
a, a glimpse of sort of what's to come for his career because like I said it's it's very weird that he he sort like from a critical perspective like explodes onto the scene he's 23 he writes he draws um both at like a high level he's like an, a very effective storyteller um and he produces this book that is like instantly recognized by his peers as like the best new series to come out that year and then he goes on this hiatus he comes back to work on zot for a few more years and then at that point he's basically like and now i'm done with like serialized comics in the in the traditional mold and what everything he does from there on out is in some way like experimental it's like understanding comics is um is like a textbook basically yeah um and then on his website like as the internet starts to be more of a thing he starts yeah he starts doing all kinds of like insane stuff with web comics and like it will we'll get into it i'm sure a bit when we do yeah, reinventing I almost, comics I almost don't want to look at the stuff on his website because like i just immediately saw it and was like whoa yeah and so like i'm I'm just not gonna dig into that stuff until we get to it he's yeah so suffice to say it's it's crazy that yeah other than i think we're gonna be talking about his um superman adventures run that's the only thing pretty much that he's like ever done for a big two publisher and that it's just weird to me it's crazy that he came out like had this big coming out party in a way with Zot and then like made his name as like the like comics formalist or like comics theorist with understanding comics. Mm -hmm. And then like never actually like, yeah, like he's making his living doing comics, but it's all like this weird digital stuff or these like nonfiction books about comics, like theory and and form. Like it's not, it's not even like he like independent. It's not even like he did a Zot where he independently created. He's like done with serial comic book. Exactly. The only, the only serialized things he's done since then have been web comics. Um, Including including a Zot webcomic, which I think we might try to read at some point. I'm, I'm sure we'll see. I saw I saw something about that on Wikipedia. I think that like it's like sort of like then like an infinite canvas kind of yeah concept. Which, yeah, a very again a very experimental thing. But yeah, I think, it sounds wild. Yeah, it you don't you don't have to dig too much into like all his stuff, but. There, like he did this one he did this like three oh my obsession with chess that's what i'm thinking of it's like a two-parter and when you pull it up the whole comic is visible next to like a little blurb that he wrote about like explaining like this is like an autobiographical thing about how i loved chess and also like is kind of a weird thing that readers were a little <laughs> a little like intrigued by but when you click on it you can see the whole thing in like miniature form and the layout is crazy and then when you click on it it gives you like the full size version and navigating it is like <laughs> the biggest pain <laughs> anyways i think this is like a good a good sense of like what he was getting at with the infinite canvas thing that the idea that when you're on a website like there's no it you can just keep page yeah you can just keep scrolling forever and and he starts to like experiment with that idea um and yeah it's <laughs> it's very weird like i said he gets he gets uh 
Yeah, and even like clicked on it, it shows parts one and two together as like one one big chain. But it's like, yeah, it's laid out like a chessboard, so it alternates alternates um, white or black on white with white on black for the art and the text. Um, and yeah, like zigzags all over the, the page in terms of the layout, but still flows. Like you, you're never confused about what you're supposed to be looking at next. But yeah, it's it's a very it's a very weird thing, and and I think in a, a good example of kind of the the stuff that he chooses to focus on, as opposed to pursuing a more conventional and and probably more lucrative career doing like work for hire um, comics, uh, like like just being like an X Men guy for a while or doing like a prolonged Superman runner, you know, things that he probably could have done a good job at. And received that critical acclaim and probably a lot more financial success than what he had with Zot. Um, but yeah, it's it's just part of what's interesting about his career that he's never. Uh, yeah, he's he's. I think what comes through in a lot of ways in Zot is that he is um, very passionate about comics as like a medium, and he's interested in comics as a medium in a way that is is very artistic and is very separate from not, not separate from because as a creator's rights activist, obviously he's concerned with like, you should be able to make a living making comics. Um, and I think his career also indicates that money is certainly not his like principal concern and is not clearly not what drew him to comics. I don't think there's many people who you can say were in comics for the money, <laughs> but, uh, but certainly not in his case where I think he could have stood to make a lot more money doing more corporate work and chose not to. Um, yeah, the guy sounds like a dang-ass freak, I'll be honest. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, the the next chunk of Zot Issues is very good. And I'm, I'm excited for you to read it. I'm most excited for you to read what comes after. But I think we're doing 11 to uh, 27, I want to say. If you say so. I think I, go I texted by, you go the, by your clock. Well, you just I think you just texted me that one to ten were one piece and then eleven to thirty six were a I second sent you piece. like a full a full reading order. Yeah, I'm looking at it right. Oh wait, yeah, you Oh okay. yeah, I did say oh yeah, okay. And then I said eleven eleven to yeah, I think we should do <laughs> <Okay>. this. <laughs> okay. I think I think we're gonna do eleven to twenty seven next and then we'll do twenty eight to thirty six. Um yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. And I support it. I don't know how I'm gonna edit this down. Um <laughs> Edit what down? Leave that, leave that in. This episode of the podcast. Leave it in, baby. <laughs> it's all going 40. in and no edits. This is it. I, I'm I'm pretty happy with how this is going. I'll going be honest. <laughs> oh, that's you're always saying that. Oh, um, that is going to have to do it for my Please. sake. That's going to have to do it for today's episode of got the runs i hope that this came out and so maybe i can sort of edit this into a chessboard type structure please do and uh if if it could zigzag back and forth uh over people's screens as they listen to it that would be good and it has commentary from me apologizing but it's like for how oh, weird and bad <laughs> it is <laughs> but it's all just about you um and then like the kirby awards are like a an inside cover uh, <laughs> but yes that is going to do it for now we hope you enjoyed we certainly enjoyed bringing it to you uh, and until next time where we will be covering Zot exclamation mark issues 11 to 27 we will see you then bye bye bye
Let's just keep doing that. <laughs> Let's keep doing Borat related things. You know what? You know what? Uh, I'm continuing my record. This is just gonna be one side of the. No, don't continue. It's just gonna be one side of the conversation where I talk about the fact that my favorite underrated Boratism is Chenkwi. David's laughing. Goodbye. <laughs> I have stopped. Oh no, I have happened.